You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, I am joined by Eric Kaufman. Eric is a senior fellow, policy exchange professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, author of the recently published White Shift. Eric, welcome to the show. Joe, it's great to be here. Thanks. Great to have you on. So I think that a great place to start this would be, um, as many of our audience already know, last week we interviewed uh, Neil Ferguson, and this is Neil Ferguson of Stanford. I just want to add a quick caveat here. Not Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, the, the guy that modeled the COVID-19 right. deaths. I just want to add that quick addendum because we had about 100 comments about that. Uh, so Ferguson came on the show. He launched a real staunch defense um, of yours, of academic freedom, basically in relation to a, uh, a, a ruckus that a small number of students had launched on Twitter. Um, that video has now done, I think, I think it was about 71,000 when I checked this morning. A lot of, lot of people on there uh, really speaking in kind of defense of yours, in defense of what he was talking about um, in, that, in that video. So kind of what can you tell us about really what's been going on at Birkbeck? What's, what, what's, what's going on over there? Yeah. Well, I think this, this is a good illustration of where a really, really tiny number of people can make a big noise. Uh, so this is sort of something called the Birkbeck Students Anti-Racism Network. And what it is, is essentially a Twitter feed. Uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly who's behind it, but every six months or a year, they kind of go off on a tirade against me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so they've actually done the Kaufman out thing on a number of occasions, but this most, most recent time, they sort of tried to pin together a whole bunch of what they thought were their strong points and, and fling it at me with the, with the Kaufman out hashtag. And, you know, they got a, a few hundred likes from within their, their very narrow kind of radical activist community. But what was interesting is how badly ratioed they got on Twitter. And then, and that, that even in, in the press, for example, even in the Guardian, which you, you might have thought might be the only outlet that might support them, even there they were criticized, you know. So, I mean, you know, some of the things that they were mentioning, essentially being against what they called anti-racism, right, which, of course, is, is a sort of uh, a fig leaf for essentially radic any kind of radical activism that claims to be in the name of anti-racism. It could be about microaggressions. It could be about use of certain words. It could be about just being a conservative, you know, anything like that. Uh, if you're against anti-racism, you are therefore a legitimate target to use IRA language. Um, and so <laughs> this was sort of behind it. And they were, they were suggesting that the fact that I'd written for, you know, really, but a really kind of centrist mainstream publications like Unheard, uh, the, or, or, or um, the fact that I worked with Policy Exchange, the mainstream largest think tank in the UK, happens to be conservative aligned, but that sort of made me part of, you know, essentially the other. Um, so, so their conception of who is a racist is really broad. Um, yeah, so they kind of tried to make a, a big go of it, and I think they were pretty humiliated uh, because it's sort of like the bubble colliding with reality, you know, and people could sort of see into their little world of, of, of what is considered racism in their narrow world. So, yeah, I thought that was, and I was very appreciative of, of Ferguson uh, going to bat for me. Absolutely. What was the sort of response being from uh, Birkbeck? Have they paid any heed and stir at all? Yeah. So this is really interesting because you, you know, typically the modus operandi of these people is to raise a stink, embarrass, try and make the university think that their reputation is in danger and therefore the university will cave in. And that's often what happens. I mean, the case of Neil Thin up in uh, University of Edinburgh, where right. he criticized this decision to change the name of David Hume Tower. Uh, and suddenly the students attacked him, put in a formal complaint, got him suspended from teaching. And in other places, 
you know, even some people have been fired for this. So in many cases, you know, universities will in fact cave in. And these, this, I don't know if it's this group or people affiliated with them have put in formal complaints against me before, which, which are, you know, psychologically taxing simply because there's, there's a big unknown factor as to where this is going to go. Um, so Birkbeck itself has been uh, pretty good. I mean, they haven't reacted to this. Um, I think the, the it, you know, the top layers of Birkbeck University are, are pretty, pretty sound, I think, in free speech terms. The students also, the, you know, Birkbeck students tend to be evening students. They're a bit older. Um, generally, you know, the, the vast, vast majority have, have no interest in these sorts of things. And I've never had an issue in class, for example. Um, so it is really a small group using that name, and they don't really seem to have much clout. Uh, but what I will say is there are academics within the university who are sympathetic to these people. Not many, there's a handful. Uh, and there's certainly a body of radical left opinion, which is sort of behind, uh, maybe not canceling, but certainly sympathetic to the technique of inflating the meaning of terms like racism and, and harassment uh, to include things which are not racist or, or harassing. Uh, even just writing for conservative publication makes some people feel unsafe. You know, that sort of reasoning is, is there, but it's a minority uh, who hold those beliefs. The one thing I would say though is, we're in a very interesting policy context in Britain because the academic freedom uh, legislation and white paper has now come through. I mean, it still has to formally get passed in parliament, but uh, it's appeared in the Queen's speech. What the message, you know, the message there is very clear, which is that um, free speech has to come first and these other obligations uh, to, to the extent they're important come second. So you can't use an inflated claim of harassment to try and shut down, uh, you know, to shut down somebody's academic freedom. And, and because the government's been pretty strong on that, I think universities have got the message and you can see it in a number of places where universities have backed off now where maybe in the past they would have bent to the uh, social justice activists. So I think that's very positive and I think shows kind of a way forward. But in Scotland, there aren't the same protections and you can see that there's a difference. In Scotland, the academics are much more vulnerable. Whereas I think in England, now with these new protections, uh, academics can breathe a lot easier. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you just in terms of that. I mean, how have we ended up in this position, right? Because the academy really was the great bastion of free speech. It was the, it was the place for, uh, you know, a good idea would drown out a bad idea. So how right. have we ended up here? Well, I mean, if you look at the long history of academia back when it was also a religious institution, I mean, there were many in much of the history of academia has been about defense of orthodoxy. And some have argued were academia swinging back to that historic uh, you know, pre 19th century role of being a defender of orthodoxy and dogma. Uh, particularly because of these new sort of progressive values that are increasingly defining the missions of universities. Um, so that is an ideological project. It, it, it really begins in earnest in the, in the 1960s. Um, if you read Nathan Glazer, for example, some of the critics of the student revolts in the 1960s who said, you know, Glazer started out on the left. He was involved in the, supported the Berkeley free speech movement in 1963, 64, but then he says what happened is what, turned, what started out as a movement to defend the right of people to protest the Vietnam War and to criticize um, suddenly switched and became quite authoritarian. And the movement actually started saying, well, we don't want to have army recruiters come on campus and businesses come on campus. And we want, we're going to occupy the dean's office and strike and we're going to not allow professors to speak. And it became much more about that kind of mob control of speech rather than defense of free speech. So I would say wired into the DNA of the cultural left, particularly the post 1960s uh, left is an authoritarian streak. And that's become more and more apparent as their power has grown, as they become a larger share of prof professors, uh, a larger share of administrators, controlling more and more positions, calling the shots, that authoritarianism has come more and more to the surface. So I don't think this is new. This is not a post-2015 development. It's, it was already there. And you can already see episodes of canceling happen in, happening in the 70s, in the 60s. They're just more frequent recently. 
So it's a frequency issue, which has been powered by social media and online clickbait news sites, but it's not actually a new ideology. That's really interesting. I think that when this really dawned as a problem to me was last summer when a uh, group of students, and even I think some even lecturers might have signed it, where there was this kind of attack on Steven Pinker, who by no means is is far on the right scale. I mean, he even says himself, he, he says he identifies on the left, but I think he's just sort of against the kind of woke orthodoxy, if you will. And they tried to, to cancel him. And the, th- the crazy thing about that was that he wasn't even sharing his opinions. He was sharing scientific articles. He was retweeting posts and people said that, oh, you know, because you've shared this scientific data, you don't share our views. You must be against our policies and whatnot. Why do you think that people like yourself, like uh, Brett Weinstein, like uh, Steven Pinker, like Neil Thin, have kind of become these uh, targets? What, are there any common denominators there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a clash between the sort of pursuit of scientific reason and pursuing the facts where they lead and mm. social justice activism, which, I mean, it's a, it's a clash of priorities, what Jonathan Haidt would call the, uh, the truth-seeking university versus the social justice university. And essentially, we have a group of people who want to elevate the social justice stuff to the top of the pyramid. And whenever the truth-seeking stuff in some way clashes with the social justice stuff, then the truth-seeking stuff has to be thrown under the bus. I mean, that is really their worldview. So they are kind of counter-enlightenment. And in a way, you can see that in the radical studies fields where uh, there's a lot of criticism of science as Western Eurocentric. Um, and really, it's, it's there's a lot of time given to uh, what's called standpoint epistemology, the idea that, you know, as a speaking, as a, an indigenous person, as a trans person, uh, you know, yeah. This is my lived experience. So the idea of lived experience as knowledge or, or, or you know, this term indigenous knowledge is sometimes used for uh, the sort of traditional knowledge of, of indigenous communities, that that somehow has a, an equal standing or even a higher standing than, um, you know, evidence-based um, representative sample-based science. You know, this, this, this is kind of a new orthodoxy that's challenging, if you like, the old uh, side basis of science, and it's very regressive. So the the term regressive left, I think, is is suitably applied to that group. Um, so yeah, they're they're really seeking to overturn, in a way, the values of the traditional university. It's interesting that earlier you um, mentioned Neil Thin because it was, uh, I think it was this morning actually. I was I was reading about that, and um, so Neil Thin is from the University of Edinburgh. And the students say they accused him of uh, racism and sexism. And um, his views apparently were described as problematic, triggering, offensive, bigoted, racist, misogynistic, and transphobic. Yeah, all the usual. (laughs) You know, and I guess from the sounds of that, the students of the, you know, University of Edinburgh, they must be kind of very confused as to how uh, Goebbels is teaching their social anthropology class. Right. <laughs> but again, you know, he's none of those things. So what did you make of, uh, of that case? Well, I, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> there's a number of interesting facets. I mean, one, it's a classic, the classic playbook of what's called concept creep, expanding the meaning of terms mm. so that, you know, criticizing, renaming David Hume Tower becomes akin to calling somebody the N-word, you know, the, essentially the collapse of, the, of any nuance. Uh, if you can tar some action or behavior with this term racism or misogyny, you can shut it down. So right. it's, a, it's a weaponization through inflation. What George Orwell talked about, the meaning of words becomes political rather than scientific. And that's kind of what's going on, I think, uh, with these students. What's interesting with the Thin case, a couple of things. One is that he's actually now pushing the universe. He's saying he won't teach until they actually, you know, get these students to sit down, not punish them, but get, he wants a meeting so that he can actually clarify what's, uh, you know, what these accusations were and and have some sort of pushback. Because you're right, I mean, in a way, as, one University of Texas professor who's anonymous was writing, he said, in a way, 
the process is the punishment. These people can go on slinging accusations. It's like the ones that were directed at me. Next year, next week, they could do the same thing and there are no consequences whatsoever for what they do. Right, uh, right. The university is not going to touch them, right? So they can sling, they can try again and again and again, and they may all fail, but they can put people through the ringer, tie them up. And in a way, what they're doing is chilling speech because people will say, I don't want the hassle. I'm just not going to say this. Uh, and so they managed to, to achieve their aim, which is to shut down free speech. I've never gone for, a, for an academic position myself, but is, is an issue here, what I would imagine is that if you're an academic, and if let's say especially if you're going for a real top position, and I imagine that there's probably a hiring committee, I imagine that you probably have to um, go through all kinds of checks. It's probably very difficult to get a high-level academic job, I would imagine. And if you get sacked for being problematic or triggering, I imagine that that makes it very difficult in the future to find one of these very other hard academic jobs is that is that fair to say that's absolutely right i mean just to give you an indication i mean at our university which is a mid-ranking sort of university one job we got you know 150 applications that's pretty typical uh these are incredibly hard to get hmm. uh, full-time jobs are incredibly hard to get in academia everyone knows that and especially if you want to get a job in a place you want to live or are already living so they know that you know if they can get someone fired, that person is going to have a hell of a time getting back in, and certainly getting back in anywhere they where they have a family or where they're established. So they have an incredible amount of power, uh, and it's not just getting fired. Uh, you know there aren't that many firings, although there are more in the U.S. But the and they've increased a lot just in in between 2019 and 2020 in the U.S. So sort of a fivefold rise in these cancellation attempts. Um, so there's been a big jump and it is an increasing issue, but it's more than the secondary question of, okay, well, he may not get fired, but is he going to get promoted? Is right. he going to get hired? Uh, is he going to get a grant? Is he going to get a good committee assignment? Um, socially, will people sit down to lunch? Um, what's it going to be like in the staff meeting? So these sorts of considerations are subtler, but I think actually more important and it's not just about the institution coming down on you, but it's actually also about uh, political discrimination. And this is the other big, big elephant, which is, you know, most academics don't support cancel culture. It's only about one in 10 that is actively in favor of these campaigns. Uh, at the outside, one in five, but generally one in 10. So most academics really don't support canceling, but um, because particularly in the social sciences and humanities, I feel like anthropology would be almost entirely uh, left wing, maybe a few centrists, very rarely would you find a conservative. Um, because of the skew then, if you are actually outed as a conservative, that will harm you in terms of getting published, getting promoted, etc. socially. So uh, there are, in addition to the cancel culture, there's also the political discrimination. And these two things, punishment and discrimination, lead to the chilling. So you're going to actually not, even if you have a theory about why there is differences in group outcomes on, say, income or education, you're going to keep your views to yourself. So you're actually damaging the scientific enterprise because the only view that is permissible becomes, well, it's got to be because of discrimination. Then those are the only papers that got published. And that becomes so-called the orthodoxy. But the truth might be something very, very different. It might be that you know, cultures which emphasize saving in education are, you know, their members are actually going to do a lot better than those who don't. I mean, this is one of the, and, and this is not a racial thing. So you have within uh, blacks, within whites, you have different ethnic groups that have a different emphasis on uh, on these things, and their incomes are vastly different. Um, and that was kind of one of the right. points in the uh, the recent government's uh, race commission report. Course, with went, which went down extremely badly amongst people who study race in academia, but told a lot of truths which had been kind of concealed or soft-pedaled in a lot of the literature, and that's what caused the storm. Facts don't care about the feelings, as the saying Right, right. <laughs> I was going to uh, uh, comment about um, the disciplinary procedures at university. I, I interviewed Michael Schirmer, and we were talking about the case of uh, Brett Weinstein, who is university evergreen 
Um, they really kind of cascaded him out. Um, Brett was obviously a very popular professor there. His wife, I think Brett said he was on the show, he said that his wife was actually ranked the most popular professor at Evergreen. Um, right. And Shermer said, I can't understand why a university would side with a group of people on moral authority when seven years ago, these people were 11 or 12, right? <laughs> uh, do, do you think that perhaps... They're still 11 or 12. They're still 11 or 12. <laughs> do you think that perhaps the disciplinary procedures, that these things need to really be robust? Because as you say, there are real consequences for these things where perhaps universities now, they've become kind of checkmated because they've said, we are diverse, we are inclusive, um, they've kind of tied themselves down to these little uh, mantras. So whenever someone has, you know, a diversity of opinion, the one diversity that the left don't like, then they kind of have to uh, side with the minority groups. I mean, it's very interesting. I think that, you know, universities sign up to a lot of stuff. They all say, oh, yeah, we love free speech. And, oh, yeah, we're a caring community. And equality and diversity. So they sort of throw all these things up in the air. The real question is always, okay, when there's a clash between two principles, which one wins out? Mm. And typically free speech has fallen down, down to the bottom because the people who are uh, pushing the progressive authoritarianism are radical students who can show up in your office. They, are, they can disrupt, they can protest, radical academic faculty and administrators who can in committee meetings, and I've seen this, can essentially shame the administrator, you know, the, the leader of the university. Um, so they're facing the radicals all the time. And of course, the climate of tab the taboos and the norms uh, favor them, and they can leverage that. So, so if they say, we're doing this in the name of anti-racism, uh, we want to decolonize the curriculum, we want to have a, a, a blacks only um, meeting place. And if you sort of go against that, then you're going against anti-racism, which they're able to frame as meaning you, you have the cloud of racism settle on you, right? So that's the game. It's very deceptive. Uh, it's sort of, you know, they surround themselves with these nice terms. Therefore, if you go against anti-racism, you're, you're a racist. Um, and most administrators don't have the arguments to be able to sort of push back Mm. And they feel the sort of sting of these taboos, so they cave in. So I think that the sort of normative climate uh, has been stacked in such a way that uh, universities and administrators, they just don't want to have the taint of social death, i.e. racism or sexism foisted upon them, so they take the safe route. Um, and yeah, I think ultimately we're going to have to have a debate over these taboos and the definitions, to, you know, one of the things that's happening, okay, in the academic freedom legislation here in Britain, they are very clear now that academic freedom comes first and these other obligations around harassment, which is defined so broadly as to include anything someone subjectively feels to be harassing. You know, all of those loopholes, all of that wiggle room has to be taken away through tighter, very, very tight legal definitions defined in case law. I mean, that is really where this has to go. Now, politicians could be, more forthright, I think, in saying, this is our operating definition of racism. This does not, you know, wearing a sombrero uh, and or, or, or saying master bedroom does not constitute racism. You know, it has to get to that level of granularity. Otherwise, if these definitions are nebulous, the activists can just push on them and everyone will capitulate. Now, in the case of the US, of course, a lot of universities like Evergreen, I believe is private. Many of them are private, so they're not bound by First Amendment legislation. Right. Um, but in Britain, the universities are state funded essentially directly or indirectly. So the government can be much more prescriptive and needs to be much more proactive, I think, in enforcing uh, what is actually the law. So these universities are more or less interpreting the law the way they want to in a way which is not really the way that the law it would be interpreted by a court. Uh, so they're kind of bending things so that free speech falls second compared to you know, reputation of the university, harassment, blah, blah, blah. What needs to happen is you need to have a legislative solution where, and a government solution that actually says, no, this, this is what you're going to prioritize first. Whenever there's a clash, academic freedom comes first, this comes second. You cannot, and if you try and sort of 
use that to shut people down. Um, we're going to fine you and you're going to have to change your, and that's, that's what's going to happen in Britain. I think that has to happen uh, for anything like uh, this chill to be, to, to be removed because actually the problem will not go away on its own. It's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse because the generation coming in is considerably less tolerant and considerably more authoritarian on these questions. Not all, but I'm just saying it's a higher share of under 35 academics twice as likely to support cancel culture attempts. And similarly with the student body, they're more intolerant. And those people are gonna be coming into the workplace in the next 10 years or so. This problem is, is only gonna get worse. So we have to sort of bed down um, legislative protections now uh, while there's an overwhelming support for them just so that they're locked in. And then we can continue to work on creating a free speech culture. I was going to ask you, um, in terms of the redefinition of words, which we kind of talked about, we mentioned that, you know, 20 years ago, it was, it was terrible to be racist. Now, a white person is racist by uh, just the action of being born, according to right. people like someone like a Robin D'Angelo. Uh, it seems to me like this is where the left are actually very uh, clever politically, I see a lot more astuteness from the left in this uh, push than from the right. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, that you know they they can redefine words, and it can really help them push an agenda. In this case, do you think that this is something where the right need to be far more kind of uh, astute and aware of these things than the left? Yeah, I think the right have always been on the back foot on these issues, mm. and that goes all the way back to the 60s, that they've never really effectively defended uh, the sort of free speech, rational scientific order properly. And they've never really gotten serious about the challenge posed by progressive authoritarianism. They've always been indulgent. Um, and I think that has to change. I think that it really has to be seen, and I think it is changing. I think people are aware that this is now becoming an existential threat to freedom. Um, and so, you know, you can look at different models. I mean, I think if you look at Chris Rufo in the campaign against critical race theory in the US, I think Rufo, who's not an academic or an intellectual, but I think he's been extremely effective by having a simple slogan and pushing back just consistently against attempts to deflect, to say, oh, and now critical race theory just means this sort of, uh, analysis of power structures and, and an attempt to sort of abstract away from what is actually quite a pernicious doctrine. Uh, and simply having a simple slogan, you know, critical race theory. Now, it's, you're right, there are many different types of theory involved in critical race theory, and that's a fair point. But the way it's actually implemented uh, in a vulgar way uh, in schools is, is, in fact, extremely, you know, racist and discriminatory. So I think that's been effective. You need to have sort of soundbite style uh, terms that can counter this, their soundbite style terms like racism, transphobia, and whatever. It, it has to be something simple, uh, but it also ultimately has to be principled. And I think this is the key is to sort of really point out where, uh, so that definition of racism you just mentioned, I mean, it's rooted in, in unfalsifiable, unfalsifiable, unscientific conspiracy theory, essentially, that says, you know, if you're white, you're born into this invisible matrix that the words you use and, and the names of things and everything reproduces this hierarchy. Well, in, in, if, if, you're, if you've got a scientific theory, you have to be able to measure what you're talking about. You have to defend against counter theory. So one obvious counter theory is no, the name of David Hume Tower actually doesn't help to uphold anything. It does nothing. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably the truth. But nowhere along the line are, are, is their theory testable. So it's sort of smoke and mirrors and so it's very hard to actually push against. Um, and they'll always be able to say, well, no, we actually shift the goalposts around. No, we actually mean this, we don't mean that. Very important to nail them down on definitions, on measurability and on testing. And I think that sort of has to be a key part of the approach. So when you have these dishonest attempts to redefine uh, racism, there has to be an answer that is, well, okay, so here's the counter hypothesis that you know, calling something a master bedroom uh, has zero impact. Um, on any kind of hierarchy. So let's talk about that as a counter theory. What's your, how are you going to knock down that counter theory? And there will, there will be no answer. So they've been able to get away unchallenged for just a very long time. And I think that has to change. 
It's interesting you say that because I was actually just thinking about this last week with the case of the uh, Queen's picture being taken down at uh, Magdalen College in, in Oxford. And I was thinking that they, they were calling her, um, they were saying that oh, she was upholding colonialism or, or something to this extent. So is there a case that these people are saying that that hypothesis that she's upholding colonialism, they're treating their hypothesis as conclusions, but obviously but you can't test those. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that? so normally in science, you know, the default hypothesis is that the thing isn't true. So what's yes. called the null hypothesis. And, and as a scientist, you have to disprove the null hypothesis. So the null hypothesis in this case is the queen is not upholding colonialism. <laughs> in a normal scientific paper, you would actually have to disprove that first before I take you seriously. Instead, they because they tap into this kind of religious reverence for the term racism, they're able to switch it around. So the default is we've accused her of racism. She's a racist and unless you could really conclusively prove she isn't. And of course, it's almost impossible to prove <laughs> what's in her mind. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's this kind of dishonest sort of inversion of the scientific method uh, that 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 is used consistently. It's amazing how many smart people their IQ just drops like 50 points whenever you talk about racism, gen uh, sexism or, or transphobia. They, they simply stop thinking clearly. Either that or they're running for the hills, um, one or the other. We've kind of talked a lot today about this sort of uh political discrimination, a kind of intolerance, really. There yeah. seems to be no real tolerance for any um, uh, thought process which is outside of our own doctrine. Why Why is that? Why are we so tribal in, in that way? Well, I think that, I mean, there is a degree to which tribalism leads to what's called motivated reasoning. So you, you actually make decisions based on your tribal impulse and you justify them later. That's again, Jonathan Haidt's mm. metaphor of the elephant, uh, unconscious elephant pushing you in one direction and, and the rider making up a reason why they're moving in that direction. I mean, that is kind of tends to happen with tribal affiliations, but I think it's important to note that, that I think the, the, at least at the sort of upper echelons of society, the highly educated part of society, there tends to be, I think, more of a religious fervor on the left. That is, when I say religious, I mean a belief that history is moving in their direction, the arc of justice is moving in their direction, that, that in a way that people who, conservatives are, are not just wrong, but they're morally bad. Whereas I think Certainly amongst intellectuals, I think conservative intellectuals would say, well, no, the left is, is it's more about them being wrong, factually wrong in their uh, assessment of, of, of why inequality exists, of, of what is the good society. Whereas I think on the left, you get more people who think, no, a conservative is an evil person and they're morally bad. And therefore, I can't be friends with them. I don't want my kids to, to marry one. I don't want to date one. You know, there's an interesting Statistics. Here's an interesting statistic from uh, a, a big survey of 20,000 uh, undergraduate students taken last year by Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. Um, if you take, so there's, I think, 3,500 from the Ivy League. And so if you just take Ivy League female students, 1,500 or so, um, about 7% support Donald, voted for Donald Trump or support Donald Trump. You just take those out of the mix and you just look at the other 93%, only 6% of that 93% would date a Trump supporter. So that is astounding. I mean, if you actually think about that, only 6% of what is essentially effectively all female Ivy League students would date a Trump supporter. It's not quite that bad amongst non-Ivy League students, but it's still very high. I mean, it's still something like, I don't know, 15, 20%. Uh, is all that would date a Trump supporter. So, you know, you're kind of dealing with <clears throat> an incredibly high level of political discrimination in these elite institutions. And that I think you also see that reflected, say, in Britain. There was a survey done recently that showed that um, willingness to be friends with, I think it was be friends with somebody who opposes your stance on BLM. You know, amongst pro-BLM people, the majority wouldn't want to be friends with somebody who opposes their stance on BLM, whereas amongst the people who are against BLM, still about three quarters would be friends with somebody on the other side. And, and so it does seem, at least in Britain, that there's a big imbalance 
the sort of Brexit side, the conservative side, the kind of that side is more tolerant politically, whereas the other side is much more intolerant politically. In the US, it looks like the two sides are a bit more evenly matched, except at the elite levels. So across society, both sides are equally intolerant. But at the elite level, it also looks like there is an imbalance where the um, liberal left side is more politically intolerant uh, than the conservative side uh, at the elite levels. So yeah, that is, I think, tied to this more religious uh, disposition that, that for people on the left uh, at the elite level, their belief system is a kind of religion and, and, and a violation of that becomes a violation of the sacred. Have you seen what's been happening with GB News and their advertising situation? I have indeed. I know. I mean, how ironic. <clears throat> so along comes a new news site talking about wokeness and cancel culture. And the first thing that happens is people try and cancel them. I mean, is it proving their point? You know, it's, there's no sense of irony with these people. Um, but this is this the thinking that, you know, we're, we're not going to use better ideas or argument. We're going to try and boycott and no platform and cancel. I mean, this sort of mentality comes from this very religious fervor. That, that no, they're not just different and having different points, they're evil. And we're gonna call what they're doing disinformation, uh, which incidentally is exactly what, what tin pot dictators do to opposition parties. They say, we're gonna throw you in jail for disinformation. Um, you know, so this is kind of, the, uh, this is sort of the level to which uh, some of these crusaders are sinking. I agree, I agree. I would love to uh, jump into your, um, your academic freedom in crisis, the, very 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 great report which you published before i do a if i was to just kind of um balance the argument and say perhaps in the case of some students um or you know for instance in the case of people like pinker or isn't it wouldn't it be fair to say that in a, in a kind of fair and free democratic society that people have the right to kind of complain and whinge is that fair to say that they have the the right to do that yeah, I think they do have the right to complain and whinge, you know, until it becomes defamatory, which is against mm. the law. So within the law, you know, they, if they want to sort of issue misleading uh, claims, then then they're free to do that as long up to the point of, of defamation. Right. Um, but, you know, it's more it becomes more of a problem when they start trying to sort of essentially uh, get you fired. Uh, or, or I've, I've seen situations where people have tried to contact um, places where people are going to speak to try and get, especially paid speaking uh, yeah. engagements and try and get them to sort of disinvite the person. You know, this is sort of level where they're really getting at people's material existence and trying to sort of use extremely authoritarian tactics. I mean, what's tricky, I think, from the point of view of of histories, we're used to thinking of authoritarianism as coming from the state, you know, the state locking up individuals, throwing them in jail, not allowing you to speak. Uh, and that ought, uh, is the case outside the West, as that's the big threat to free speech, Hong Kong, for example. But the threat we face in the West is a little different from that. It's more of what I would call emergent authoritarianism coming from the institutions on up. So there's an infiltration of these middle-level institutions like universities or tech corporations or, or what have you, an attempt to target their HR departments, their media, comms departments, uh, their administrative layers, and use that to silence people or, or activism within these institutions to try and create a climate of fear. So because the authoritarianism is coming from this middle level of society, not in individual citizens or the government, it's a particularly tricky problem. And actually the solution to it, I think, is you actually need the government to move in and regulate. And that's very hard for a kind of liberal to understand why would, how can the government regulating improve freedom? But actually it is the case, and we've seen it in history too, where um, you know, if you take the US federal government's intervention into the uh, segregation of Southern universities, they actually were allow, able to go in and say, no, you're not allowed to keep black students out. That improved the range of choice and freedom for black students, but it was a violation of the institutional autonomy of those universities. But that is necessary when you have corrupt institutions that have been taken over by a kind of mafia or mob. The only way to restore freedom for individuals who are political minorities 
is for governments to essentially regulate and implement the law. So they're, they're moving with the grain of the law, whereas in authoritarian countries, they're essentially violating liberal law uh, and, and protection of freedoms. But in this case, government action is in harmony with and implementing uh, those legislative freedoms. And very anecdotally, it's usually the people hounding HR departments that will have treat people with kindness in their Twitter bio. <laughs> but, you know, I, I digress, I digress. So I would love to jump into um, your political report. I read it this week. I thought it was very, very, very good, very detailed. Uh, the paper, Academic Freedom in, in Crisis, Punishment, Political Discrimination, Self-Censorship. Could you walk us through some of the key findings? Yeah, so essentially the this this compared the UK, um, the United States and Canada, which is where I'm from, um, where and, and just looking at a couple of things. The first was uh, to what extent were academics self-censoring uh, in their research, teaching um, and discussions with colleagues? And, you know, we saw some interesting, you know, quite staggering numbers here. So something like uh, nine and ten. Trump supporting academics in the US were not willing to share their beliefs with colleagues compared to only about one in 10 Biden supporters. So you have this huge imbalance. I mean, a Trump supporter, if you're a Trump supporting academic, you're in the closet in the United States, especially in a social science humanities department. And there's only about 5% that would be uh, Trump supporters, maybe at the maximum 10%, but really a small number. Um, in addition, uh, I asked about support for punishment and discrimination. So on the punishment side, what you could see is that one in three conservative uh, American uh, PhD students or academics had either been punished or had been threatened with discipline. So a very strong impact there that a lot of uh, conservative or dissenting academics are feeling the heat of cancel culture. It's, so one of the arguments that's often made is, well, a few incidents of no platforming, the odd dismissal, it's really small when you think of the hundreds of thousands of academics or, in the, or a million in, in, in the United States. What is a handful of cases? Now, of course, those handful of cases, if this were uh, gay speakers or black speakers or, or, you know, or Muslim speakers being shut down, you know, that would clearly be a, a huge civil rights furor, and it should be. Uh, so I don't want to minimize the impact of those high-profile cases, but it's really the iceberg of self-censorship that goes on within the university that affects hundreds of thousands of, of mm -hmm. students and academics. That's what I wanted to, to, to look at. And so you could see, for example, seven in 10, um, seven in 10 conservative academics in the US said they self-censored in research, teaching, discussions with colleagues. So a, a majority, um, people who, and at, and at the same time that this climate of, of this chilly climate is maintained not just by fear of being fired or disciplined, but also by political discrimination. So we saw, for example, in Britain, one in three academics wouldn't hire a known Brexiteer for a job. In the US, four in 10 wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter for a job. Um, and that then gets you thinking, well, if you're on a panel going for promotion and there's four people on the panel, the chance, you know, for every individual has a sort of one third or 40% chance of discriminating against someone who they know to be on the right. right. Then you, you do, do the mathematics, you know that in a highly competitive situation, it's best for you to keep your views um, hidden. Uh, and so it's this real, you know, uh, what would I call it? I guess this sort of epidemic of self-censoring that, that I tried to point to in that report. But but rooted in survey data, rooted in the numbers. So you can't just say, oh, well, that's just the story of, of Joe who got no platform at Edinburgh. And, you know, that's just one anecdote. I mean, this is, this is a sort of a way in which the other side tries to deflect this as a problem. It's not a problem, it's just a few anecdotes, but actually, no, it's, it's a majority of people who belong to political minorities, such as conservatives, Brexiteers, or gender critical feminists, for example, uh, most of these people are experiencing a loss of freedom and a loss of academic freedom. So this is not just a few incidents. And that's kind of the key point that's to say, this is a massive problem. And as a result of this massive problem, uh, the university is becoming more and more politically skewed because um, graduate students can pick up on these, this climate of 
a hostility to their beliefs and they just don't enter. They just say, I'm not going to go through that. I'm not going to become an academic. And what that means is then the body of academics becomes even more skewed to the far left or to right. the left. And so we're now in a situation in the US where, you know, it's like 14 to one left to right in the social sciences and humanities, aside from economics. Um, in some departments like anthropology, they're essentially uh, researchers couldn't find any registered Republican. <laughs> I mean, is that really going to, uh, are they really going to get things right? Are they going to be asking the right questions? So they're not going to be interested in questions like, oh, why did the share of Hispanics and Asians voting for Trump increase? Well, they don't want to know. And so you're not going to get any academic research on that. So this, the mission of the academy is simply not going to be fulfilled because they're not asking certain questions, or if they do ask those questions, there's only one right answer. So there isn't really that free flow of ideas that you need to advance knowledge in these fields. Really, really interesting stuff. And I'm going to put a link below for people to um, to read that paper. I really, really enjoyed reading it. Um, I think today we've covered quite a lot, and we have realized clearly academ right. academia has a number of issues which are appearing to be urgently need, are in urgent need of being solved. So I would love to ask you just to kind of tie this off. If you had kind of a, a crystal ball, if we had Eric Kaufman's crystal ball and he could look 10 years into this future, do you see this stuff as getting better or worse in the future? Um, definitely worse, uh, or at least I would say without government action, um, it's going to get worse because... Right. If you look at support for uh, canceling academics who violate orthodoxy, uh, it, it's only about one in 10 in the, amongst academics over 50, and it's more like one in five amongst those under 35 and amongst PhD students. It's at, at, in, on some questions, it's one in two. So the, the millennials, as they form a larger share, in these institutions. I mean, we've seen already in newsrooms like the New York Times, it's the young staffers that are saying, you know, Tom Cotton's editorial was published by uh, this editorial editor, he's gotta go. Uh, they're the ones that are pushing for these cancel uh, incidents. And so I think the problem left on its own, it's gonna get worse. I, I expect it to get worse before it gets better. Uh, all the more reason why we need to lock in protections now for academic freedom uh, before we get a climate that is just so hostile. Uh, I mean, the other thing I should say, though, is we're I think we're going to see increasing clashes between governments which are elected by the populace who generally prioritize free speech over emotional safety and activists within the institutions who prioritize emotional safety. Um, and so I think that clash will play itself out in different ways. I mean, you see it in the US, this, this battle over critical race theory in the schools, uh, academic freedom in the universities. These sorts of culture wars battles, I think are gonna redefine politics. And I think it's actually a good thing because in a way the radical left has started all these culture wars. It's not the case that the right is, is doing this for fun. The left has started all these culture wars in these institutions. The right has reluctantly been dragged into them in a defensive way. I think these issues need to be raised in, in, into electoral issues. So, so the electorate has to decide, do you want your universities to be essentially about emotional safety or, or about the pursuit of truth and, with academic freedom? Do you want academics to be fired when they violate orthodoxy because of the uh, action of mobs? Well, if not, you actually have to make laws and enforce those laws. And so it is a political issue and is rightfully a political issue. Um, and so I'm actually pleased to see these issues rising uh, up the agenda and being debated, uh, and they need to be debated, and, and laws need to be tweaked, a case law needs to be uh, adjusted in a way that reflects, I think, the views of society and the precedent established in the common law. Self-employment has never sounded so good. <laughs> <laughs> so you, um, as I mentioned today, you were a, a very renowned academic yourself. You've got a number of uh, academic papers. You've got your book, White Shift, behind us. Can you point us to any of your work, any upcoming work, anything you'd like our audience to check out? 
Well, yeah, I mean, my book, White Shift, which is about populism and polarization uh, in Western societies, came out with Penguin in 2018 and in the US in 2019 with Abrams. Uh, it's at www.sneps, that's S-N-E-P-S dot net. Uh, you, can, you can find details there on my, on my website. Um, and other than that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a, a report now. Uh, well, I'm working on, on a report uh, for the Manhattan Institute that looks outside the university uh, where, you know, because political discrimination isn't, isn't worse in universities. It's, it's people are, are equally discriminatory outside. Um, although the, because it's, it's so skewed in terms of the partisan mix in academia, the effects of discrimination are much, much stronger. But I want to look outside academia at people working in businesses, in government, in education generally to see uh, what, how strong a, a problem, how big a problem this is, this chilling effect, uh, how much political discrimination there is, how fearful people are of saying the wrong thing. Uh, and so that's going to be sort of my next publication. Probably look out for it in a few months' time. I certainly will. Any plans for any books in the future? Anything on the yes, horizon? but but I haven't started writing, and it's right. it's 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 a long way off. I'm 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 kind of thinking through ideas to try and compare the culture with the the economy. So in in the economy, we had this battle between socialism and capitalism, and we came to a midpoint around mixed capitalism, welfare state with capitalism. In culture, I think we have a very similar battle going on, but the socialist side is more or less. Uh, dominant and the other side is kind of disorganized and we need to kind of come to another uh, accommodation. Uh, so that'll be sort of where I go with that book, but it's still early days. Early days. Stay tuned. Eric, okay. my last question for you today that I sign off all our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living? <laughs> well, I, right I, I would say <laughs> what I would say is, is, you know, be true to yourself. Um, and, you know, uh, if you believe something, don't feel, don't feel sh ashamed to say it. Um, because I think if you conceal and, and hide your, your views and beliefs, then you're being, you're not being true to yourself. So I think now I, I appreciate people have to make a living and they have other obligations, not to say, uh, you're, you know, just blurt it out at work, but to the extent you can resist, uh, the pressure to, to be silent, I think you should resist. I love that answer. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks very much.